sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. We're already through the first half of season one, so today we have a special episode looking back at the best moments from the first 10 episodes. We kick off the episode looking back to my chat with Craig Jones, where he shared some stories about his humble beginnings in the sport and some of the sacrifices that need to be made in order to make it to a high level. So you have your first ADCC going into the second one. Was your confidence high for the second one? Nah, not at all. Not at all. I remember I was, I'm trying to think of how old I was, 27, four years ago. So I was 25. And I remember I was hitting that point where I was getting sick of being a broke competitor. So I remember almost going into ADCC 2017 with the idea that this is my moment. If it doesn't work. Like make or break. Yeah. I'm like, I'm probably just going to open a school. Like, because you get, I mean, especially the, especially as you get closer to 30, you're sort of like, it's harder and harder to chase the dream because you're just like seeing people around you living comfortable. Like ADCC 2017, I lived in a, the, one of the worst share houses imaginable with two of my training partners, like just... Like this place was so bad, we were the only ones that applied for the apartment itself. We would use the bathtub as a as a dirty ghee pile, and it was just like <clears throat> I didn't even have a bed frame. So I was like, "Jesus, I'm 25. Like, I probably should try to make a living off this." So, so it was like sort of a make or break moment. But then I drew Leandro, and I was I was not confident in that either because he had just beaten Gordon. I wonder sometimes if the college lifestyle and the jiu-jitsu lifestyle they're kind of uncomfortably similar, really. Like yeah, even definitely. I remember us being over for, in Miami, me and a, me and a couple of my friends for ADCC camp in probably 2015, and it was the ultimate slump. Like it was amazing. It was honestly the best three months of my life. It was right across from the gym. We rented this house, really cheap, no furniture in the house, nothing. We had three mattresses on the floor. Uh, we had no pillows, no duvets. We used well because Miami is really hot. You don't really need one, so we used the pillow that we stole from the airplane. <laughs> we, we used the blanket that we stole from the airplane pretty disgusting looking back on it but it is what it is uh we had we had no furniture we had a couch in the kitchen and the kitchen had no air conditioning so it was about a million degrees and we had a table in the bedroom and the only thing we bought was we went on craigslist and we bought a 50 inch flat screen tv <laughs> <laughs> which was it was definitely stolen because it was too cheap it was about 150 dollars we so we bought that we had that set up and then we had to get the Wi-Fi from one of the houses across the road. So I was thinking, okay, how are we going to get Wi-Fi? Because we couldn't use our data and we wanted to download films and all these different things. So I went over to, the, there was a kind of a, another fighter house across the road where actually Adolfo and Joao Gabriel and a few guys were staying. And I asked one of them, I was like, oh, I need to call, I need to call my mom. I have no internet. Can I use the Wi-Fi for a minute? So they gave me the code. And then we went back over to the house. I was like, I have the code, boys. So we started downloading all the films and different stuff. <laughs> But we had to leave the door open for the internet to come in. So it was funny. We would say like someone would shout out to the kitchen, Tom, open the door and let the internet in. So when you're enjoying times like that, you know that you must really love jiu-jitsu. Cause, uh, but looking back on it, it was brilliant. D- uh, Dante Leon stayed with us for a few weeks as well when he was a purple belt. And he slept in, I think it was like a military style cot that we borrowed from <laughs> from one of the lads at the gym. So this is the kind of stuff that you're dealing with coming up. Yeah, you have to be able to go through that. You can, you can only do that. Like, uh, I never got adjusted to life with a full-time job or in a full-time mm. salary or anything. I feel like it's much easier to never have those comforts than to have them and give them up for the dream. Cause once you got them, 
You don't want to, yeah. Once you've got a bed frame, it's hard to go back to no bed frame. <laughs> Moving on from Craig's experiences living in a jiu-jitsu fighter house, he also gave us some insight into how he handled competing at ADCC 2019 while dealing with a pretty serious case of viral pink eye at the time. How was it competing being sick like that? Yeah, it was pretty bad because I had to, what was bad for the eye was uh, dry, sort of hot temperatures and I had to cut weight every day. So I'd wake up and go to the sauna and then that would make my eye worse. And then we were actually trying to keep it a secret from the medic that it was pink eye. We were pretending that I got poked in the eye because obviously Josh Inger and Keenan were trying to get us eliminated from the event. Um, I mean, actually, it's funny. Josh Inger and Keenan tried to get us eliminated, but even Gal Bauer came up to me. He's like, hey, it's ADCC. He's like, I'll go in with anything. You know what I mean? So, but what happened was I was taking these corticosteroid drops for my eye. And another th- funny thing about that is Gordon, I remember Gordon saying to me, he's like, ADCC, where even your eyes are on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard a truer word in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting corticosteroids in my eye. But then the medic came up to me and he's like, at the end of day one, he's like, oh, I've got these corticosteroids. I'm going to put them in your eye. And he's like, we'll give you a huge dose. Trust me, this will help. But I had already put it in there, but I couldn't say no to him because he had no. So he just starts pouring it into my eye. And because corticosteroids, even if you put them in your eye, they go into your system. So I remember he gave it to me and it wired me. Like I didn't sleep for fucking 30 minutes uh, between day one and two. I remember I felt super nauseous, uh, like almost like I was on drugs, like I I was wired. I I had to come home and I couldn't really eat. So I ate a little bit of pasta because I had to cut weight for the next day. I remember laying down with my eyes open and then my alarm going off at 5 a.m. to go cut weight again. And I just didn't sleep at all. I don't think it affected my performance too much. Like, I don't think I got tired of the Denise match. Denise was just anti sort of anti jujitsu. Like, I did good with John Blank match. And speaking of having challenges in your sporting career, that brings us to our next guest, Chris Holdsworth, where he describes how he dealt with some very difficult injuries that took him away from the sport of fighting. But yeah, it was hard, man. Just, uh, you know, I felt like I was just on the rise and, and just barely like showcasing what I was capable of and it kind of got taken from me. So that was like the hardest part in the beginning, like when you have your identity just kind of taken away and uh, not knowing like how long it's going to take. And for for anybody who doesn't know, I I dealt with some concussion issues uh, just for some context and um, they messed me up pretty good, man. I'm still not the same. You know, I still don't feel like like 100%. But anyways, like for, for the most part is, is just to enjoy life because beforehand I would, I lived in the gym, man, when you're an athlete and when you, when you're a competitor, like that's all you do. Like I didn't care about chicks. Like I didn't care about having fun, like having fun was cool, but like all I wanted to do was train and get better. And you know, after a fight the next day I was in the gym, if I wasn't injured, like I was, I was doing something the next day, um, staying in shape, staying ready. And it was almost like a, an addiction. Uh, well, it was an addiction, you know, like I needed it. I needed that, 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 that feeling. So when it got taken from me, it was pretty hard, but thankfully that, uh, I had teaching and, and coaching to fall back on. And, you know, the guys, uh, believed in me and, um, you know, were able to see what, you know, what I was able to do from just what I did in my, in my fights or from training and they, had something that, you know, I had something to, to, to offer them. And I'm just, I'm just happy. I'm still able to be involved and help out. It's, it's definitely not the same. You know, I'm, I'm walking behind the fighter now instead of like walk being the guy walking in front, but I'm okay with it now for a while. It was hard for me to, to, to like, ah, oh man, like, Oh, Chris, you're going to fight again. Are you retired? Or you know, I was like, Oh no, I'll be yeah. back. Like I'll be back. 
And like that was all that that little I'll be back was like really messing with me. So once I was like able to like tell myself like I'm not gonna fight again, like it's not worth it to me. Um, once I was able to kind of like mentally do that, like things started to turn that corner. So I'm trying how I can like pull that all together to like help somebody else. Yeah. I think just being resilient and, and, and trying to figure out like if, if one thing doesn't work out, um, you know, keep your head up and, you know, try to focus your energy on, on the positive and not the negative that this could have went totally opposite. You know, I could have turned into a fucking drug addict or an alcoholic and just let it ruin my life because um, fighting got taken away from me. But just being resilient, being resilient and not giving up on, on life because, you know, you can give up on little things, but don't yeah. give up on yourself and on life and. I'm just happy I'm still be on the mat. I'm still able to roll and you know give back. Yeah, and so have you officially retired from MMA? Then, like, are you sad? Are still testing you? No. So, thank man, they stopped testing me like <laughs> six months, dude. I was getting tested by them for for five years, like, wow. And it was just annoying. Like, there's nothing for me to hide. It's not like I feel like, oh yeah, they're not. Let me yeah. get on the cycle. Uh, <laughs> uh, but like the thing was, they would just knock on your door at five, six in the morning, like when you're trying to sleep and. I just didn't like that, but I'm happy, man. Like I, I went to see this doc cause I was like, man, let me give him one more shot at this whole recovery thing with, went to see this, this therapist and we did a bunch of stuff and it definitely helped some of the, uh, the lingering things I was going through, yeah. but whatever the doc wrote to the UFC, like literally like the day or after that, like, yeah. like, all right, man, we're releasing you. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Like I've been trying to get you guys to release me all these years, but they just didn't, I don't know why they wouldn't, but yeah, I'm released, dude. I'm retired, man. Like you only get one brain and I I don't have the brain that I used to and the confidence that I used to of running through anything. Like I used to have the con like punch me, kick me, like I have the yeah. hard head, like I'm just gonna get not I'm gonna come back. Like I just had that type of attitude and you need that in MMA and um I'm I know and I'm mature enough to know and smart enough to know that like I don't have that anymore you know like i don't want my brain i don't want my brain to get fucking smashed anymore it was great to chat to chris about all his experience in both jiu-jitsu and mma and our next guest jake mckenzie i had to make sure i asked him how he actually got started on learning the half guard that has made him so famous around the world i did a private lesson with a guy here that came to nova scotia and i was young i was like maybe 15 or 16 and uh i roll with him and it was I felt like I did really good in the role, you know, and I asked him afterwards, I was like, Hey, what do I got to get good at? And I really was just kind of fishing for a compliment. I was like a 15 or 16 year old kid. You know, I was just wanting to tell me, Hey, you know, you're, you're really good, you know? And, uh, I remember he did pass my half guard a whole bunch of times, but this guy was kind of like an asshole to me. He was like, man, your half guard sucks. Like you have no half guard game. Like you need to learn how to do that because someone's just going to get there and smash you. And maybe like three or four months later, I ended up going to Brazil for the very first time. And, uh, Another kind of just kind of crazy coincidence that happened in my life, like the school, the school that I went to, the head instructor was this guy, uh, Eduardo Gemelon. He's the guy that invented the deep half guard. He taught it to Jeff Glover. He taught it to Bill Cooper. He taught it to me. And I didn't really go with the intention. I didn't even know that he was this half guard master, but he would just teach half guard every day. And I remember in the class thinking like, man, I hope you learn like a guard pass or like maybe some close guard one day. But it was like three months of half guard. And I remember when I came back to Nova Scotia, my uncle Kevin, I was rolling with him and he was always a belt higher than me. He told me, he was like, he's like, man, what are you doing in the half guard? Your half guard is 
really good. I don't think I even swept him or, or was able to score points, but I was a lot harder to fight from that position. I had a lot of knowledge, you know, so that was, he was the first kind of inspiration that I had, you know, and then I realized afterwards, I did some research on him that I probably had the best half guard teacher in the world at that time, you know. And it's kind of a unique game as well. As you were saying, there's not that many people at a high, high level that are doing it, especially these days. Do you feel that helps you a lot with the competition? Because you've been competing as much as anyone, I'd say, in the world. You seem to be one of the most active competitors the last like 10 years or so. Has that helped you a lot, having a bit of a unique game? Absolutely. I think like uh, I remember one of the guys that I really look up to in the gym, Vinny. Vinny Marino was one of the best guys I ever trained with. He told me, I, I was talking to him on the mat one time and I was like, man, I was like, I was like, man, I'm having way more success now later in my career when I thought that I would be on the decline than, you know, I did when I was 25, you know, and he goes, he goes, things are just going in trends, man. He goes, people don't know how to deal with your game anymore. You know, he said, maybe five years ago it would have been harder for you. But I think, yeah, having like a strange game, I think is really good. And how did it hold up against Adolfo in the gym? I'm just wondering, he doesn't seem like someone that would be very fun to play half guard against. It was a terrible experience. I remember the first time I trained with him. I was used to training with Cyborg all the time, so I, I was used to training with big guys, and I knew how to get underneath them and stuff like that. But Cyborg's game and Adolfo's game are so different. Like Cyborg is very like flowy and open. He likes to transition. He gives you space to work so he can try to counter you. I remember I trained with Adolfo, and Adolfo just smashed me into the ground the first day, and I couldn't go back to training for like two or three days because I couldn't move my neck. I was all twisted up, you know? Like So training half guard with him is never fun. I loved hearing the story about how Jake developed his half guard and also the different struggles that he had on applying it against some world champions that he was training with. And our next guest is no stranger to training with world champions as well. It was great to get a chance to chat to Philippe Pomaski and talk to him about his time spent training over in California at Checkmat HQ amongst many legends of the sport and black belt world champions and some of the different lessons that he took away from training over there. How was the training there and what did they... What were they kind of doing differently than other parts of the world? Because they were getting good results. Training was really good, obviously. Hard to say what they did differently. I mean, Leo Vieira is a great coach, obviously. So he would always, you know, make sure that guys learn what they need to learn. Like, he knows so much about jiu-jitsu. So any question you ask him, he has, like, the perfect answer to it. A part of that, I mean, guys would just train hard. They're focused. They they lift weights. They do conditioning. They tra- They train jiu-jitsu. So... I mean, it was just tough training for me. It was especially like good and tough because I would be the only, most of the times, the only lower belt training with them. So, I mean, if it wasn't before world championships where everybody comes over to, to fight and then there's like the gym is packed with a hundred people. If it was during the year, usually we would um, have like the lunch training. It was like at noon or one. I was like a purple belt. And I was the only one, I think most of the times it was black belts only and me, you know, like there wasn't even any brown belts. But so it was Bouchesha, Panza, Lucas Leici, uh, Juan Assis, uh, Arnaldo. It was just a beating every day <laughs> for like, uh, you know, for the for for all this time. But it was good. I mean, I learned a lot. Thinking back today, I think like, again, like I said before, I could have done it better. I don't think the beatings were necessary every day. Because it just got me really tough. I think that's something... I mean, it helps me today, obviously. Like, being tough always helps. But you don't need to get beat up every day to be tough. Like, I felt... I feel like I could have learned way more and progressed quicker if I did it more... Like, if I sought out progress more actively. Like, if I was actually like, oh, I need to learn this. No, I went to the gym and I would spar with the guys. We would... uh, Lunch was 
um, 10 times 10 minutes. So 10 rolls of 10 minutes. And we would just, you know, like, and now I'm heavier. Now I'm like uh, 94 kilos. At the time, I was like 85, 86. And I mean, Bouchesha is 100, uh, I don't know, 15 or, you know, Panza was always over 100 kilo. Like all the guys, Lucas Lecce was like a little lighter than me, but tough as nails, obviously. But usually the guys were bigger, stronger, uh, better. So it was just, I mean, I could only do my A game every day and still get smashed. And it would just, I would be injured. I would be hurting. And thinking back, I think I could have done a lot better if I, if I actually tried to focus on getting better than other than just hard sparring. I think that's one mistake I did. Learning has definitely been one of the biggest themes of this season so far. And it's very interesting to hear how the different competitors approach their training to improve their skills. And going back to the first episode of the series with Dante Leon, he had some strong opinions on what's needed to learn the sport of wrestling properly to be able to apply it in jiu-jitsu at a high level. Well, I've always been a big believer if you want to learn how to do something, you learn how to do it. Um, you know, judo for BJJ, jiu-jitsu for BJJ. I always hated that mindset because it was like I came from a martial arts background. I came from from you know, a bunch of a bunch of uh, culture around martial arts, you know. This sounds funny, but like my dad was like crazy big in all kinds of different martial arts, boxing, all kinds of things like that. So like I saw all the, you know, Kung Fu magazines in the basement. You know what I mean? I saw all the uh, Bruce Lee movies and Bloodsport and all this stuff. And then being somebody who gets interested by it, you start to study different things. You know what I mean? You start to look, kind of look shit up and, and ask questions and, and things like that. And I kind of built my mind up. So when I, when I got to be in jiu-jitsu, we would do takedowns all the time. And I'm like, why are we doing this when I look up wrestling online? on my shitty computer at home, you know, why are we doing that? Like, that's not really like what it is. We're wrestling's wrestling, you know, judo's judo. Why don't we just study the martial art? It's a completely different martial art. You know, if you want to learn how to do, you know, punching and kicking, you don't just go randomly learn how to do some like street fighter combos and expect to be okay. You know, you're going to, you're going to have to go and study how to box. You're going to have to go and study uh, a combat art, you know, so. And were you able to go back and work on that with a specific wrestling team? So I had a lot of different people that I trained with and I'm in Ohio, so it's not hard to find good wrestlers, you know, I mean, yeah. they're all over here. And um, right now I'm really fortunate to be kind of under a lot of different good wrestlers who have D1 college wrestling experience, you know. Um just to name a few, I mean, Lance Palmer, we're working together with Lance Palmer, Logan Steber, um, a few other guys, Michael Pixley. Um, I know a lot of guys probably listening to this doing jujitsu, Sly Bosselman, Nate Hagen. I mean, probably don't know who those are, but, you know, state champions in high school wrestling yeah. since they were little kids, you know what I mean? Uh, some of them even world-class, Logan Steber is world champ. So, you know, I, I know that those guys know a lot. Wrestling something, man. I think guys in jiu-jitsu, you know, for a long time and even now, it's 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 kind of like that. It's either that they just oh, will find a way to not do it or we'll just do, you know, wrestling for jiu-jitsu, you know. Basically, we just do, you know, single and double leg and that's pretty much it. But we don't actually learn how to wrestle because 
what people don't understand is just like boxing and just like jujitsu, if you don't know how to move your feet, you don't know how to move your hands, and you don't know how to stand, if you don't know how to move your head, just basic things that don't even require you really touching another person. We're not even getting into takedowns yet. You're just going to like forget all of that and go straight to like a takedown. You know what I mean? It's, it's like not knowing how to, to hip escape. It's like not knowing how to do a, a break fall or forward roll or anything like this, not knowing what a close guard is and going into jujitsu and I'm going to teach you how to do a triangle. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, cool. Okay. You, you, you know it, but you, you literally know nothing else. Another great interest of mine is actually the mental side of the sport. And I've been lucky enough to have guests on such as our next one, Darrell O'Connell, where we could have a great chat and explore the different parts of the mental game. When did you feel like you started to believe in yourself a bit more with competition and especially competing over in America? I know that's like, for me, that was a big thing, testing my skills over there. There's the divisions are 10 times the amount of people in each division. And then you kind of get a more accurate depiction of your skills, especially for you. I think the first time most people got to know you, let's say maybe outside of Ireland or even some people in Ireland was doing the BJJ Kumite, which looking back on it is one of the most amazing competitions ever. There's so many world champions from that, so many ADCC competitors and medalists. How was that experience? And how did you even get on the event? I think those two questions all linked together because when you're talking about when did I start to believe in myself more, I went in 2012, the summer. So I met uh, Lovato, Rafael Lovato Jr. through training with Saulo and Shanji. So 2010 and 11, I went for three months in the summertime to train with Saulo and Shanji. And then being there, I met Lovato. So in 2012, I was like, okay, instead of going to San Diego, I'm going to go to Oklahoma and train with him. Because I feel like at the time he... I mean, he still is, but he was younger than them. He kind of was like more inverted commas, modern jujitsu versus kind of the more traditional style. So uh, I was like, okay, I'll go to Oklahoma. And he was the first person that I met who talked about more than just doing moves. You know, he, he would talk about mentality and mindset and man, all these things that, you know, are just a given nowadays, but I'd never, I'd never even thought of oh, you need to believe in yourself or you need to, you know, have some self-confidence or you need to visualize what you're going to do or you need to see yourself winning before you ever win or you need to have a plan of if I want to be world champion, I need to be able to win this to then win this to, you know, just stuff that seems so damn basic now. He actually, he recommended a book that he's read a lot. It's quite a classic book. It's called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. It's like nearly every self-help book, I don't say the same type of things, but being there was the first time I learned about you need to set yourself a target of what you want to achieve. You need to make steps to get there. And then you need to be able to visualize every day, seeing yourself already having done it, you know, like feel what it feels like to have done it, feel having that medal already around your neck. And, you know, all these concepts that are nowadays, I think are very well established in jiu-jitsu and everyone knows about. So he was kind of the first guy that put this into my head. And from being there, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to win Nogi Europeans. That was like a realistic goal for me. It was like, I know it's not worlds. It's not as hard as worlds, but it's hard. And that's what I'm going to do. So I, I made my plan. I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on this. So in 2012, then after the summer, they did the first Nogi Europeans in London and I won. I made a plan for it. I was like, I'm going to fucking win this shit. Focused on it, went, won. And I was like, oh my God, I 
fucking can't believe it. If you actually believe in yourself, it works, you know, like <laughs> crazy. And because I won that tournament, now I had like a major title, like a, a European, a world, a pan, whatever. And then Lloyd Irvin started posting about, oh, because Ke Keenan had won the double gold purple belt at every single belt. Everyone knew about this guy. Lloyd Irvin started posting about, oh, who could beat Keenan? Who's going to fight against Keenan? There was a couple super fights that were supposed to happen that fell through. He was supposed to fight Felipe Pena, and then he was supposed to fight Jackson Souza, and then they fell through. So then it became, okay, let's open it up to anyone. Like who out there is good and is a brand belt and wants to enter this thing. So I was like, okay, I might as well just go on Facebook, send Lloyd Irvin a message. At least I have a European title to say like, I'm kind of good, you know, like, can I have a go? And I, I, I just sent the message thinking nothing of it really. The next day I got a message back. Yeah, you're in. Just let me know what day you're going to arrive. And I was literally like, oh my God, I, I can't. Because at the time, man, it's hard to explain how... Lloyd Irvin was so huge at the time, you know, like his team were doing, so, I mean, his team are still doing very good, but I don't know, just that, that specific time period with Keenan, no one had ever really seen professionalism like that. And it was just so, there was so much hype around it. And then to see like that I got in, I remember messaging all the guys. I was like, they, they said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go. This is crazy. And it all just kind of spiraled from there. And it was a good time because I had just learned about some belief in myself about knowing what game I want to do when I go to fight and blah, blah, blah. And then I even got the extra blessing of it wasn't a points tournament. It was going to be, an, it suddenly got flipped into, okay, you go until you tap. And my defense has always been a lot better than my attack. Back then, heel hooks weren't as much of a thing. So like heel hooks were a problem for me for a while, but it's hard to choke me. It's hard to fuck to put me away. Like if it was points, man, I probably would have just lost to the first guy. If it was a knockout tournament, I would have just lost and then see you later. But instead, I don't know, this weird format allowed me to kind of show a different part of my jiu-jitsu that I might not have got to show. And man, the show was so huge. Like, bro, nearly 10 years later, people, they still talk to me about it. I'm here in Brazil right now. People, they still say it to me. Absolutely insane. It's one of the best things I ever did. And I learned so much about myself. And yeah, it was just that situation all in one year of going to Lovato's learning about mentality and believing in yourself and visualization, these types of things, using that to win something. And then that win being something that pushed me into being able to get into the fucking tournament was, yeah, very special. I've been lucky enough to have the chance to chat to some great competitors throughout this season so far. And in our next clip with Oliver Geddes, he's not only a great competitor, but also one of the top referees in the world. So it was very interesting to hear some of the funny refereeing stories that he's come across throughout the years. I mean, in terms of refereeing stories, it's not as exciting, but one of the ones that really sticks in my head, um, I've blanked on the names of both of them, but they were both uh, one, uh, they were both very, very large heavyweight men, black belts. And basically they ended up, they were just going sort of head to head, just doing standard big man, head to head, pushing around kind of stuff. And then both of them just started sort of blinking like intensely. They were sort of like rubbing their eyes and, and stuff from there. And so I stopped it. I said, are you guys, are you guys, guys okay? And basically what had happened was one of them had had like deep heat on the back of his neck. And so they basically they've been collar tying up and then it ended up in their head and then the sweat began running down. And so we had to stop them action like and saline both of their sets of eyes because neither of them could see because they'd both been blinded by this accidental chemical warfare that had suddenly kicked out. But it was uh, it was kind of a weird one. Uh, that one sort of stuck. It wasn't anyone's fault. And I was like, are you guys all right? Because it was sort of got really uncomfortable to look at. And then, yeah, we washed their eyes out and that was that was OK. 
been other ones. I mean, there's like a guy got a massive hematoma on his head, like in a fight that was like he was winning, but I was like, we're, we're going to have to stop this, stop this fight because you've literally got like a crater in your head where two guys are fighting and then one guy basically arm drags, jumps on the other guy's back. And as the other guy is defending the hook, the guy who's standing's pants fall down. And so you're standing there. And so you're like, um... Okay, so step one, we can't carry on because the pants are down. So we, we pick the pants up. And then the guy wants to restart on his back because it, it was stable, but his pants were down. And so you're like, okay. so And so you've got to put it in position that's kind, it's not unfair either side. You can't immediately escape the position, but you can't you know, put them in it either. And then it goes, then the guy escapes. And, you know, that's the hard thing as a ref because you ultimately decide whether the person's going to get that position or not. You know, you can put them in it and, and you can put them halfway in. But if, if they're just past the tipping point out they will always get out at the high level because you're not putting them in the locked in position you know and so it, it's messy when you have that and so it's always when you make a call like that and you go oh god and the guy immediately escapes you're like please just win win another way so i don't feel it's my responsibility for you know like make it clean yeah those are sort of the ones that immediately spring to mind and so moving on to our final clip for this special episode we look back to the episode with fion davis where she took us through some of the odd jobs that she used to work on her come up through the sport and you mentioned as well coming through the ranks and having to work odd jobs. What kind of jobs were you doing to support yourself while you were waiting to kind of become a pro, let's say, in jiu-jitsu? I began in a pub. Um, nice. <laughs> so I used to pull pints for old men. So that was my first um, great times. <laughs> then I worked as a receptionist in a gym, which was convenient because the gym I trained at was literally upstairs. Um, so I could finish a shift and go to the train. And then my personal favorite was uh, as a bouncer in nightclubs, which um, I have great stories from. So, <laughs> and that's all that, that experience has given me is some fun stories, I suppose. Did your takedown game come in handy when you were working as a bouncer? Honestly, I just really appreciated how much jujitsu is so helpful. Like everyone would always be like, oh, did you throw them? And I was like, you can't throw people. You will hurt them. Like... You can like use little trips to take them down, but you have to try and control the takedown. You can't just go around like Iponse and Aggie and people onto the ground. <laughs> you will kill people. Yeah. And, like, and I chat to lads there and like most of them were MMA guys. So that was so good because they could they could help you. They, kn- they knew how to control people. But then you'd get like the odd time where like someone would just come and fill in someone's space. Um, and he'd be like, I'm a boxer. I'm like, so you're going to punch people? That's not even le- like you're not allowed to do. <laughs> it's also clear that to be a jiu-jitsu world champion, you need a strong competitive nature, and that's definitely not something the Fion lacks. And were you very competitive at the time when you were doing it as well, even as a young kid? Oh, you know, <laughs> I am so competitive. It's like a blessing and a curse. What would be some of the positive things you feel, and then some of the negative things? Because I know myself, there's definitely a balance. Like there's a time and a place for an, a good old tantrum, but sometimes it gets too much, you know. <laughs> Oh, 100%. It's like, I think the best things about it is it'll give you a drive. It'll push you to like, I do not want to lose because it hurts me so much. Like it hurt my feelings so much, which is like obviously very egotistical. And I know people say, oh, in jujitsu, there's no ego. It's like, there is so much ego. (laughs) And that's okay in some ways. Um, I think it's just not letting, like the negative aspects would be obviously if you are so competitive that you won't even roll with certain people who are going to challenge you that's obviously not good. Now, I've never felt like that. Like, I would not... Because I've always just wanted... No, I want to beat that person who keeps beating me up. Dream, even if it's ridiculous. Even if it's, like, some 90-kilo lad in the gym who I'm never going to beat. I'm like, I will. <laughs> Today's the day. <laughs> so, like, things like that are, are positive. Or, like, if you're 
lashing out at training partners or making them uncomfortable. Like, you know, like me getting upset in a role makes my partner uncomfortable. And that's something I'm still working hard to overcome because I am really competitive. But it's not it's not being a nice person at the end of the day. If I'm just there like, I would. And it's never about them. It's about me, my insecurities, my own ego. But again, it's just a work in progress. And it's definitely a hard thing to find a balance for. But I'd say as a teenager, especially, it can be kind of hard because I know with my own, let's say, competitiveness as a teenager, it might come out in frustration with myself that I'm not doing as well as I expect. And also frustration then and just over competitiveness with other people. And sometimes kids don't really like that. You know, they kind of like when you're getting on with the team and if you're trying too hard, you know, that can bounce back on you. But And so is there any times then when the competitiveness would kind of get you in trouble? Like, would you ever be feel like maybe you picked up a couple of injuries or something or rolled with someone that you shouldn't have? Like not saying no to roles. I'm again, like now I'm, I'm just, I was like, no, I'm all right. Like, I'll just say no. That I would not say no for so long to like anyone. If I was injured, it's pointless. It's not good for them. It's it's not good for me. But I can't think of any sort of occasions where it's been really bad. I think it's kind of like a situation I can think of is someone will come at me aggressive. And instead of me being like, you know what, I'm going to be conservative in this role because this person's really aggressive. If I rise to it, I'm going to get hurt, Dreen. And I rise to it. <laughs> I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> Do you know, okay, challenge accepted, man. Like I will come at you like a jungle cat and then I get hurt because I'm just not able to keep up with that pace. And there you have it for this special episode with the best moments from season one so far. The second half of the first season will be back in two weeks time with a very special guest, Lachlan Giles. I wanted to give a huge thanks to everyone for all the feedback and all the support on the podcast. If you enjoy it, make sure to share it with your friends follow and subscribe to the podcast to avoid missing any episodes and give us a positive review on whatever platform you're listening on. That really helps a lot to try and grow the podcast. We'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks time. Until then, Slánagas Bánacht.